0: I have finished my first semester at Divinity School. Is it working yet? There's a lot I could say about my semester, about what I've learned, about the way this journey plays out in my house. A lot, I could say. But that's a whole different sermon than what I want to share today. Today I wanna focus on some pretty specific lessons that I've learned. Today, I want to take you to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I went for the first time this past October for a class on faith formation. I want to take you to All Souls Unitarian Church as it approaches its centennial with so many members that it is the largest in-person UU congregation in the United States. Yes, Tulsa, Oklahoma. (laughs) I want to take you there because All Souls is changing, and I believe the progress of that change holds lessons for all of us, not just as UUs, but certainly as Americans and perhaps even as global citizens. But before we go there, I need to give you a little background, a little history, I promise not to linger too long or to make you work in groups like I used to when I taught, but there's always the option of writing a play to share your learning with us later. Mm. Oklahoma. Oklahoma was once incredibly diverse, a fact that challenged my own mental picture of Oklahoma. Before it became a state, Oklahoma was home to a population that was mostly indigenous Americans, many of whom were forced there by US policy. There was also a significant African American population who had left the East Coast because of the deadly proposition of slavery. There were also some white settlers who had pushed the frontier further westward seeking what they thought of as unclaimed land. The discovery of oil brought more white folks in at the end of the 19th century, and suddenly, the Oklahoma Territory was a really diverse place. There were multiple groups of people living there in the same geographic area, and all three of those groups benefited financially from the oil boom to some degree. All three groups lived in and around Tulsa, which was governed largely by a sort of frontier justice. Oklahoma became a state, and in response to the attempt of an African-American politician named Edward P. McCabe to encourage the formation of a state for people of color in the Oklahoma Territory, the new white leadership instituted some of the most draconian segregation policies in the entire country during the first meeting of its legislature. In the city of Tulsa, this played out as the development of strictly segregated neighborhoods, much as we find in the history of most US cities. In Tulsa, the white establishment, led by the editors of the Tulsa Tribune, complained bitterly about what they described as lawlessness in Greenwood, the city's African-American district, and home to the business district so vibrant that it's been called Black Wall Street. On May 31, 1921, an African American man exited an elevator in a white department store in downtown Tulsa. The store was the only establishment downtown that allowed African Americans to use restrooms. When he left the elevator, something happened. Most accounts now speculate that he stepped on the foot of the young woman who was working as the elevator attendant, she screamed. People came running. The Tulsa Tribune quickly stoked the flames of fear with the headline, NAB NEGRO FOR ATTACKING GIRL IN ELEVATOR. Dick Rowland was eventually taken into custody for assaulting Sarah Page. What you may not know is that the legal term assault was also code for rape at that time. Rowland was taken to jail. Now Tulsa specifically, and Oklahoma more generally, had a record of failing to protect suspects. Lynching was not uncommon. In addition to that, in 1920, a white prisoner was removed from the Tulsa jail and hung before any legal proceedings could take place. Frontier justice. In light of this record, Greenwood residents became concerned when a white mob gathered outside of the Tulsa jail. An editorial in the Tulsa Tribune contributed the warning to lynch Negro tonight. African American veterans of World War I responded to the increasingly threatening mob by taking their service weapons to stand between the white mob and the jail. An altercation ensued. A gun went off and thus began 36 hours of what has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in the United States. A white mob flooded Greenwood, shooting people on site, setting buildings on fire and if survivors are to be believed, which I think is generally good policy, dropping firebombs from planes overhead. These events were recently dramatized in the first episode of the HBO series, The Watchmen. They're also described in the Oklahoma Commission on the Tulsa race riot report of 2001. Around 35 blocks of homes and businesses were completely demolished, burned to the ground. Official estimates of the death toll range between one and three hundred victims. The possibility, the probability of the existence of mass graves, recently documented in many newspapers including the Washington Post, creates some doubt about the adequacy of those estimates in representing the deadliness of the Tulsa massacre. In the interest of time, I'll simply add that insurance companies and Tulsa legislators made every effort to ensure that Greenwood would not be rebuilt. The event was then systematically downplayed over the years to the point that the inflaming editorial disappeared from nearly all historically archived copies of the Tulsa Tribune. It was not taught in history classes in Oklahoma. And when it was taught in other states, I can tell you from experience that it was subsumed under a larger category of race riots that occurred in several locations in 1919 as African-American veterans returned from fighting for freedom in Europe to find that they still didn't have any freedom at home. The Tulsa massacre happened. It was deadly and devastating. Tulsa residents are still begging for a full and true account of what occurred. Tulsa residents still wait for an admission of some level of responsibility by the family of the author of that inflammatory set of articles in the Tulsa Tribune. Those inflammatory articles were written by Richard Lloyd-Jones, son of revered Unitarian preacher and activist, Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, Richard Lloyd-Jones, the founder of All Souls Unitarian Church, Tulsa. The other thing you need to know about All Souls Unitarian is that in 2008, the nearly all-white congregation was joined by higher dimensions worship under the leader of Bishop Carlton Pearson, about whom there is a Netflix drama called Come Sunday, and at this American Life episode called Heretic. Pearson was mentored by Oral Roberts and had a significant following in the African American evangelical Pentecostal tradition until he began to preach universal reconciliation, meaning everyone was saved by God and hell is made here on earth by our human hatred. Pearson was dubbed a heretic by his faith tradition. He created a new church community and several years later accepted the invitation to bring that community to All Souls Unitarian. Suddenly, All Souls was diverse. Different groups of people were together in one space with excellent and committed leadership assuring both groups of congregants that this was a good move for everyone. For many folks, this is where the story would end. When diversity is the goal, all we need to do is occupy the same space. We've done our work when our numbers change, when the photograph of our congregation reflects the kind of inclusive community we believe in. But what the folks in Tulsa discovered is that being together in the same building is not enough. In Teaching Community, author, professor, and activist, Bell Hooks describes Martin Luther King Jr.'s perception about this problem. Martin Luther King Jr. imagined a beloved community, conceptualizing a world where people would bond on the basis of shared humanness. King taught that the simple act of coming together would strengthen community Yet before he was assassinated, he was beginning to see that unlearning racism would require a change in both thinking and action, and that people would agree to come together across race, but they would not make community. Why is togetherness not enough? It's not enough because of everything that came before that shared moment. It's not enough because our history is full of betrayal, violence, and institutions created by people who participated in betrayal and violence. It's not enough because many of our behaviors, expectations, and cultural norms have grown out of or with that betrayal and violence. It's not enough because we have all lost who we are as individuals in the construction and maintenance of white supremacy. We live in a system that divides us into two separate groups, blurring everything that makes each of us different and amazing and that keeps us separate so that it's hard to see one another's point of view. Diversity is not enough. Being in the same space at All Souls quickly led to hurt feelings, to discomfort, to questions about theology, tradition, music, you name it. The incidents that arose led to the loss of congregation members from both communities and questions about whether new leadership might be required. That merge and the initial upheaval that came with it was 12 years ago. Today, All Souls Tulsa is preparing for a construction project that will put them back in downtown Tulsa in a spot that bridges Greenwood and the rest of the city. As a community, they are persisting despite those initial losses through a steadfast commitment to love beyond belief. I saw this printed everywhere I looked in the Tulsa church. There was a giant mosaic with love beyond belief in the middle of the piece. There were signs up with that simple phrase everywhere. If you listen to a podcast from all souls you'll hear members singing about love beyond belief. If you visit their website you'll see that phrase featured in their logo. And my initial sideways glance at that claim, because honestly it's a little ooey gooey for my immediate liking, slowly gave way to curiosity. What does love beyond belief look like in a diverse community who has committed to continuing to existing meaningfully together? I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like compromise. It doesn't look like a community where those who have always been there keep things just as they've always been. It doesn't look like always seeking out what we have in common. So what does it look like? At All Souls, it looks like having programming that meets the different needs of congregants of color and white congregants, time and spaces to discuss issues of race in ways that are safe and supportive. It looks like a robust pastoral care program that's steeped in best practices related to institutional racism and trauma. It looks like taking the time to have tedious planning conversations, maybe even more tedious than average, in an attempt to make sure all perspectives are heard, considered. It looks like dedicated time for all of our sources and sharing an understanding that if one sermon, one service, one program is not really your cup of tea, it may be medicine for someone else. It looks like staying at the table when things are uncomfortable. And I lay that out there for our long-term community consideration. But what we do inside this church is really only a small part of the point. Living love beyond belief, being on the side of love, just might be the entire point. And I believe in our culture, loving beyond belief means doing the work of anti-racism and encouraging deep, multicultural community. American University professor Ibram X. Kendi tells us that being anti-racist means supporting written and unwritten laws, rules, procedures, processes, regulations, and guidelines that produce or sustain racial equity between groups. Encouraging deep multicultural community means going beyond the recognition that everyone has commonality in being human and getting okay with the fact that people are different from one another, developing curiosity about those differences, celebrating them, rather than always seeking the narrow common ground. The point is being ourselves, each and everyone, and being accepting of differences, not because we are all the same deep down, but because we represent such wondrous variety. 1 Corinthians fourteen seven puts it this way. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Anti-racism offers the gift of rediscovering and redefining who we all are as we dismantle our current systems and the ways of thinking that come from them. Deep, multicultural community gives us our distinct notes in the symphony. On my most recent visit to school for January intensives, Classmates put together a moving service in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. During the course of that service, one of my colleagues revealed that she had recently discovered that her family of Unitarians included slave owners. She was shocked and horrified. And then she had some thinking to do. She wanted to think about what to do now to really consider what she could do to heal her family's legacy. And what she came up with feels a lot like what it might mean to move through our racialized culture with love beyond belief. I thought I'd share her words with you on this weekend of Valentine's Day. Words and work for healing and for loving. From Aaron Scott, Six Habits to Stay in Right Relation to Slavery in America. One, learn the history of our country that I was not taught in school. Two, seek out contemporary stories, the experiences of people who are classified as other from me and therefore experience the world very differently than I do. Three and I think this may be the most important. Believe them. Four, make it a habit to take direction from and follow the leadership of the descendants of slaves. It does not mean that white people have nothing to contribute. It means it's time to take a back seat for a while. Five, rescue my ethnicity from generic whiteness. By learning about and expressing the culture of my specific European heritage, I help break down the supremacy and normalization of generic white culture. Euro-American people have ethnicity and it's not white. Six, actively engage with the dismantling of society's structures of oppression and actively construct new systems of reparation that will eventually lead to equity. Erin's list is, by her own admission, not exhaustive. And it's Aaron's list. Your list may be different if I were to give you homework. Just a little list. Maybe some of yours is the same. Maybe like me, you'd stopped considering your own ethnicity and how it's been subsumed as generic whiteness. Maybe like me, you'd also be surprised to find that most folks don't serve sauerkraut with turkey. <laughs> UUs have a lot to do. Our history is not perfect, a point that Marlon Lavenhar makes clear when he reveals the role of All Souls founder Richard Lloyd-Jones in the Tulsa Race Massacre as he takes new members on a tour of Tulsa. Our theological focus on our shared humanity tends to highlight sameness, and that has caused harm. In attempting to address that harm, we're challenged to sit with our own discomfort both in these seats and in the world as we make room for change. We're challenged to remember that it's not so important that we always be right or perfect or even totally reasonable but that it is important, even when we are hurt or confused, to come back to the shared table and pass the sauerkraut, or whatever you pass. There's liberation in moving toward genuine multicultural and anti-racist society for all of us. There's real acceptance for all difference when we stop making everyone the same in order to be together. There's a whole world of growth and exploration when we move from the goal of counting with diversity to the goal of feeling, accepting, acting, and loving beyond belief in community and in the world. May it be so.